Let me pray for us as we're just standing together. Father God, I pray that you would continue to speak to us, particularly speak to us about Jesus and our own lives. Help us to realize that there is more. There is always more when it comes to Jesus, more that you have for us and more that you want from us. So speak to us now in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. I'm going to do something this morning that I've never done. Actually, I don't think I've ever done it in preaching full stop, but certainly in the almost six years that I've been one of the ministers here at Beacon Church, I've never, ever done this before. This is how significant and important I think the next 12 or 13 minutes of your life are. This, I've never, ever done it before, okay? That's how important this is. So lend me your ears, your hearts, and your mind, and allow God to speak to you. It takes me about eight to ten hours a week to prepare a sermon. That's what putting a sermon together takes for Chrissy or Kevin or myself. I'm putting down that sermon this week. You might get it next week, you might not. But this morning at the first service, and very strongly in this second service, I thought I'd just pick it up and preach the prepared one for you guys. But at both of them, I think it's right to go somewhere else. That God has something much more different in mind that we need to hear. So you'll forgive me the raggedness of the next 14, 15 minutes because it's unprepared. And instead, you will listen as if Jesus himself is talking to you. Do you understand? Jesus himself. All right? And if I've got it wrong, the elders of the church will take me to hand. Don't you worry. Your job is to imagine I'm right. I am. Right. Listen to him. Okay? Open up your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. This is on page 983. 983. I love you too much not to help you understand this. Genuinely, I love you too much not to do this well. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look from sentence 13 and downwards. One of the main people in this story is a man called Peter. You see him mentioned at the beginning of sentence 16, Simon Peter. Peter, he was a fisherman and he was an angry man and he was a nobody. And he has become, became the very first pope. He became the rock of the church. He established more churches than even the great apostle Paul. And today's Vatican, a nation in its own right, and one of the most beautiful architectural works ever, is simply a statue that celebrates Peter. It is built on Peter's tomb. How do you go from being a nobody fisherman to immortalised by the Vatican, a nation in its own right? That is an amazing work of Jesus, isn't it? Is that not a remarkable reality of what Jesus can do with a life? The capacities and impact that Jesus can squeeze out of one human life? And here, Peter is just a prototype follower of Jesus. Here he is just an example of you and me. He is nothing special. Can I emphasize that? Peter is nothing special. He is just an ordinary man attempting to follow Jesus. And what we have in this little episode as Jesus talks with Peter is three things that hold back every follower of Jesus. This morning, if you don't trust Jesus, please do. Please do. Be persuaded this morning to take that step. 
but three things across all of time and eternity, every human heart and mind, which actually Jesus needs to deal with, you need to allow Jesus to deal with if you are going to see your life put to the greatest impact, purpose, meaning that it has. We do not want to be left wondering what God might have done if only we had trusted more and tried harder. None of us want to waste our lives, do we? None of us. Our lives have meaning and purpose. Way before anyone had an opinion of you, God had a purpose for you. A huge, significant, impactful one. All of us are Peters, potentially. In a moment, I'm going to talk us through. Let me give them a heads up right now. The first big thing that restrains us and we're far too fearful of, and Jesus has to pull us through, is fear of the city, of the powers that be of the impression society around us will have of us, that kind of fear of the big picture. The second one for some of us is fear of Satan, of what actually the devil might do if we dare to put our head above the parapet and actually mean the words of the song, here I am, Lord. I know none of you, I know, I know how we sing it. Here I am, Lord. We mean, that's not how we sing it at all, because that's not the tune, but you know what I mean. <laughs> We sing it in the same way that we say, I'm fine, when someone asks us how we are. Yeah? Here I am, Lord, as long as you're not really calling. I'm fine, as long as you're not really asking. And sometimes, for some of us, it's fear of Satan. I had this hugely, uh, as an aside, because when I, I became a Christian, I was 20, 21 years old, I'd never been to church, uh, and the, the, the pastor, the minister who was helping me think about being baptised, he kept saying to me, um, now when someone gets baptised, the week after they get really attacked by Satan. I'm like, well, I'm just not going to get baptised then. Like, like why would I get baptised? If that's going to happen, I'm not going to... Yeah? But for a while, it really paralysed me. Like, I'm not going to be the one who puts my head above the pack. Let someone else get shot. I'll tend to their wounds behind the scenes, yeah? A safe place. And the third one we're going to look at, actually, I think will be the biggest, is actually fear of self, self. I had a plan. I have a plan for my life. And Jesus, you've got that wrong. That's not, not me. How am I going to look after my kids if I quit my job to do that? If I take the, the salary cut so I can free myself? How? Uh, Jesus, you, that's not my plan. Ask her. She looks keen, but not me. <laughs> Let me set the scene and then we'll look at these three. And I want, you, I want you thinking very hard about actually which one it is Jesus is calling you through. Which one it is Jesus wants to take hold of you and say, come on, stop being so frightened of that. I have a purpose for you. I have work for you. Do you really want me to give it to someone else? When it's yours? So come on, he's saying. Let me set the scene. Pick it up in sentence 13. Let me just set the scene, sentence 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's a self-referral. Who do people say I am, he's asking. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, or you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you see that little exchange? Jesus first says, who do the crowds, public opinion, well, what are they saying about me? 
And they reply with this list of John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Now, they're not saying that Jesus is a reincarnation of one of these people. They're not saying he's one of them come back to life. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. They grew up together. People saw them together all the time. They knew Jesus wasn't a reincarnation of John the Baptist because they lived at the same time. What they're saying is the crowd say that Jesus is another one of these great ones. The latest in a a line of once in a generation, once in a lifetime social reformers and revolutionaries. He's a great man. He's another one. Like uh, Rosa Parks or Mahatma Gandhi or Barack Obama. Now, if you're like me, if someone said that about me, I'd be pretty happy. If someone decided in the same breath to say Rosa Parks and Alex Harris, I I would take that. I'd say, yep, no, I'm I'm happy with that. But not Jesus. He's incredibly arrogant here, isn't he? He's like, good try, but no cigar. What about you? Who do you say I am? Do you see that? Not just the crowds, but you, my close friends, the intimate ones, the ones that have seen every part of my life. Who do you say I am? And it says here, Simon Peter blurted out, replied, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're God himself in this world. Just like Devindra did back in November, from a Hindu background. Amazing that God would help him to see that Jesus isn't just another God alongside many, but he is the God of gods and the Lord of lords above them all. Now, for some of us, that is the step that we need to take. I guess most of us have a good view of Jesus in this room don't we? We say he's another one of the great ones. He's, he's, he's another great social reformer. He motivates people to do wonderful things like this sponsoring of children in Nepal. He's a good one, but friends, that's not enough. In fact, I think the journey from Jesus is nothing to Jesus is good and great, that's a shorter journey than a journey from Jesus is great to Jesus is God. That's who he is. It's what Peter sees. But as I say, there's three things then that Peter has to push through, that Jesus has to pull Peter through, that restrain Peter. Once he's through them, the fisherman becomes a pope. My goodness. The fisherman is remembered by the Vatican. Do you see that? And he's just a prototype. The first one is fear of the city, fear of the powers that be. Fear of the media's portrayal of Christians. Look at sentence 13, would you? It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Do you see the location, the city? Jesus brings them to Caesarea Philippi. He's totally in control. It's deliberate by Jesus. And there at Caesarea Philippi, he asks the question, who am I? Now, Caesarea Philippi was a bit like Milton Keynes or Wellington Garden City, or somewhere like that. It was a purpose-built town. I don't mean it had concrete cows and roundabouts you could never navigate. I I mean it was a purpose-built town. It was built for a purpose. Its purpose was to celebrate human authority. Its purpose was to be the seat of human power. And so it was called Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar Augustus, the great Roman Empire, and Herod Philip, the governor, the king of the region. It was celebrating human power and authority. Jesus deliberately brings them to the heart and seat of human power, and there has himself declared God himself. See, where something is said makes a massive difference to what it means, doesn't it? 
Imagine for a moment I walk into our preschool down at our sand and road site. I walk in with the two and the three-year-olds, and some of them are going on four years old. None of them come above kind of my knee, really. And I walk in there and I say, I can fight you all and I'll win. I'm more powerful than the rest of you. Now, some of them are quite vicious, but, <laughs> but money would be on me. What if I walked into the army barracks and stood up in the mess hall in front of four squadrons, thousand-ish soldiers? I can take you all in a fight. Bring it on. I'm the most powerful. Same words. Big difference in meaning, isn't there? Jesus walks into the army barracks. Jesus takes them to the seat of human power. He takes them to the most powerful place there is, the center of it. Westminster, Washington, San Paolo. And there he has his authority declared that he is God. He is the Christ. He's teaching Peter and all who follow Peter, you and I, that we are not to fear the city. We are not to fear what the government actually says that we are or are not allowed to do. We are not to fear what the media's portrayal of Christians is actually like. That is not a reason not to serve and to love and to give and to speak. But some of us fear it, don't we? Some of us are worried about it, being branded a Christian. Is that yours? The second is fear of Satan. Look down at sentence 18 now. Look down at sentence 18. Jesus is speaking to Peter. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock of Peter, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. Now, there's the city of Caesarea Philippi. Next to the city is a huge canyon. At the base of that canyon, you can visit it still today. In fact, you could get your phone out right now. I invite you to and Google the gates of hell, and you'll come up with pictures of it. At the base of that canyon, there is a cave. And the canyon is so deep and the cave so far back that the sun never gets down to it. And that is called the gates of hell. It was the place that evil was thought to enter and exit the world through at night. It was the center of where Satan's power was thought to be. Do you see what Jesus is again doing here? He's making it abundantly clear that we are not to fear Satan. His sovereignty and supremacy over Satan is of the magnitude that at the end of Job, Job chapter 42, sentence 6, I think. Remember, I haven't had a chance to prep this sermon, so I might be wrong. But at the end of Job 42, 6, I think, Satan is described as like a little kitten on a string you would give your daughter to play with. Don't you love that mockery of Satan? A kitten can scratch, can't it? Squeal. It's not going to do any damage, though, is it? I reckon I could punt a kitten the length of a football field if I really tried. Yeah? Yeah? Which I won't. Don't worry. But that's how Satan's described, compared to Jesus. Compared to me, he's a roaring lion, and I'm terrified of him. That's why Peter, in 1 Peter, describes Satan as a prowling lion looking who to devour. Because me on my own, Satan's like a lion. I stand no chance. Me with Jesus, a kitten. A kitten coughing up a furball. Yeah. And licking bits that shouldn't be licked. Why do they do that? Right? Let's mock Satan, shall we? Some of you need to learn to mock Satan. Doesn't mean you're not taking him seriously, but you need to stop being restricted by your fear of what he might do. Yeah? He's a kitten. He might scratch you when you're not looking. Third one, 
think this is the biggie in the room, but I could be wrong. Are you restrained like Peter was? Are you just holding back like Peter was? Because of self. Your own plan for your life was different to what Jesus has in mind. Look at sentence 22, would you? Or pick it up in sentence 21, actually. Sentence 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus is talking about the plan for his own life, Jesus' life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Do you see, Peter has his own plan in mind. Peter has his own plan in mind for Jesus here, but he has his own plan in mind. And it was a good plan. There's nothing wrong with the plan, but it's not Jesus' plan for your life. So do you fall into that bracket? Never, Lord. Not that, Lord. Never, Lord. Not me. Never, Lord. This was a big one for me. In some ways, if I'm personal, it still remains a big one. I had a plan for my life. When I was 20, 21 years old, it was a really good plan. I mean, it was a great plan. It is a great plan. I had a really good plan for my life. It was a, it was a great plan. And Jesus said no. In that moment, as he called me to trust him, interwoven in that was this compulsion to preach and teach about Jesus. And I didn't want it. I wanted to become a Christian. I didn't want to give up my plan. My plan wasn't standing in front of people talking about Jesus from a book. My plan was to go be a water engineer in Africa. It was a good plan. Do you see? It's not a bad plan, is it? But it wasn't Jesus' plan. It wasn't Jesus' plan. Now, oddly, what was behind my dream of being a water engineer in Africa was the desire to transform practically people's lives who had little. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah? But it's got to be Jesus' plan. Are you like Peter here? Never, Lord. You've got that wrong, Lord. I mean, really, you know what I mean when I was earlier mocking gently. Here I am, Lord. We all do it, don't we? We belt out the words, but they don't get that deep, do they? Not deep enough that perhaps we mean them. Like, really mean them. Here I am, Lord. I'm going to help you to think through what this means for you. I'm going to ask you, if you feel able to, I'm going to ask you to turn to someone near to you. Either you came with them or you didn't, or you just had a little chat with them, or you've never met them before. I don't, I don't really mind. But if you feel able, turn to someone near you and just say, which one is you? Are you most restrained by the city, the powers that be? You know, worried about what what those powers would be, will say or do. Are you most restrained by a fear of Satan? I'd rather nurse the wounded than ever stick my head above the parapet and risk it all. Or are you most restricted by the fact that you have a really good plan for your life? Like it's really good. And why would I take my children to a country where the education is not as good? It's not a good plan. Never, Lord. Do you not trust them enough? too loving to wish you harm, too wise to make a mistake, too powerful to get it wrong. Jesus had to take me aside and rebuke me at that moment, by the way, like in a very definite way to get me back on his plan.
Turn to somebody in your life. Which is it? Is it city, Satan, or self? Off you go. You've just got a minute. If you feel able... <laughs>